0: Good morning, church family. It's good to see you. This is week two of Advent, and uh, we are continuing as our Advent, uh, in this Advent season, using the Gospel of Luke as we've started uh, to really just propel us through uh, the Advent season. And so today we'll be in Luke chapter two, uh, if you wanna turn there and follow along. You know, there's a common trope in stories uh, that I think we're we're all drawn to, um, I don't know I don't know the literary term for it, and I should have asked like one of our English teachers about this beforehand. Um, but I'm just going to call it uh, hero in disguise. Uh, so you can you guys can talk to me afterwards, my English teacher friends. Um, but we we see this in interesting ways in different kinds of literature and in TV and in movies and um, in books. but, uh, you see in places like Undercover Boss. You guys know this TV show where, uh, where the CEO or the owner of the company uh, spends time working undercover as a lower level employee, just so he can see the organization, see what it's like, see what the morale of the employees is like. Um, and, and so that's, that's one kind of, uh, not necessarily a hero, just you know the, a leader in disguise. Uh, or there's kind of the other side of this trope, which I think is the more powerful one that we're drawn to, where a powerful villain has seemingly taken control. And I, I, I think we, we see this in the movie Gladiator. This is one of my favorite ones. Uh, when Russell Crowe's family, I'm sorry if I'm spoiling anything from Gladiator. It's like a 20-year-old movie. This isn't really a spoiler anyway. Um, but uh, when Russell Crowe, his family, has been killed uh, and, and his life destroyed by the new emperor, Commodus. And Commodus has, has seized power, uh, and, and he, was, he was grasping for it. And he thought, after he had destroyed Maximus in such a terrible way, that he would never see him again. But somehow... Uh, Maximus, fought his way uh, to notoriety, uh, fighting from slavery into becoming a gladiator uh, in the games and was feared as a gladiator in the Roman games. I mean, in this climactic moment in the movie, Emperor Commodus rushes out to meet this terrific gladiator who has wowed all of Rome. And Commodus, sure of his power and control over his kingdom, happily says... Why doesn't the hero reveal himself and tell us all your real name? And slowly, Russell Crowe removes his helmet and the emperor's face turns white. And and Maximus says, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions and loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Yes, right? And like the, the I, it's one of those moments in the theater where just like there was just an audible, you know, everyone's cheering or, or, or saying things, right? It's because we love it. We love to see uh, self-glory eclipsed by true greatness. And it's especially fun uh, when the proud villain doesn't see it coming. In Luke chapter two, the most iconic of all Christmas passages, the hero Jesus finally comes on the scene. But the way he comes is so unexpected, so hidden, so humble, so veiled, that even the kings of this world still think they have the upper hand, but they have underestimated him. May we not underestimate him today the one whose glory eclipses all other greatness. He has arrived. So as we look at what I think is one of the most just stupefying moments in all of our faith, one of the most amazing things, the incarnation of the Son of God. As we look at this today, I want us to see four things. Number one, the glorious peace of Rome. Number two, the invisible decree of God. Number three, the inglorious entrance of God. And then number four, prepare him room. Let me pray for us. Lord, would you, would you help us today? We need eyes that would see the truth of who you are. We need ears uh, that you would give us ears to hear the realities of who Jesus is Father, we are so prone just to hear truth and just walk away from it. God, would, would you transform us today by your word? Would the gospel of, of peace, would it be made so clear to us uh, through your word, by your spirit, would we see Jesus and would we marvel at what you have done for us through the incarnation? So God, we love you. Lead us in this this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, number one, uh, the glorious peace of Rome. So, there, starting in verse one, uh, we read In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole uh, empire should be registered. The first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, uh, so everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Okay, so you've probably heard this. I mean, I don't know how many times, but a lot. Uh, so why why mention all this? Why does, what's going on here? Uh, Luke has focused on the stories of Mary and Elizabeth without giving us a lot of historical context so far. And suddenly we get these names, Augustus, Quirinius. That's a fun one to say. Uh, we get historical events, censuses. Uh, and, and so why? Why is Luke uh, including this kind of detail? And I think first... We just got to remember, he's telling a real story. Like real stories have real names. They take place in real places. There's real things going on. So he's telling a real story. This isn't a myth that takes place in a galaxy far away. Uh, This is the real deal, a real event. Um, Now there's some dispute over uh, which census this is in history uh, and even whether Quirinius was actually governing yet. Uh, this word may mean that this, this, was, this took place before Cornelius was governing, and, uh, but, but nonetheless, make no mistake, this is a historical account. Luke is compiling actual testimony and it takes place in a real time with real rulers. In fact, history will tell us that when, when Caesar dies in AD 27, that he, he left behind a, a handwritten summary of Taxation which was all according to information that he gathered through censuses like this one during his reign. And so notice as, as Luke sets the scene, there is only one glory in this text. And that glory doesn't belong to Jesus. And it doesn't belong to his parents. No, the glorious one in these verses, the one who is bending subjects to his will, the one ruling and reigning as king is a man named Augustus, the Caesar of Rome. And remember, he's not even near the story. He's off in Rome, his glory radiating all the way out and reverberating through the lowly hill of Nazareth, all the way to the little villages like Bethlehem. The word made flesh isn't even making demands in this passage, no, it's the decree of Augustus, the word of Augustus, his word holding sway. And then then there's men like Corinius who are governing and leading beneath Caesar, helping carry out his decrees. And so other than giving us a little pretext and making our Christmas Eve readings a little more exciting with names that we can say like Augustus and um, what, what is, what's, what's going on here? What is Luke showing us? See, I, I think it's really easy for us to read of, of names like this and think of characters like this in the scriptures and to think of them like VeggieTales people not even people, VeggieTales veggies, uh, VeggieTales characters, I mean, how about that? Uh, maybe passion play actors, to think of them that way. People with, with fake robes that they look real, but as you get closer, like you can see that their crowns, like their costumes, it's like there's styrofoam on that. I don't even know, uh, that's not real. Um, no, Caesar Augustus was, was no cucumber wearing a crown. He wasn't the lovable goofball villain And he wasn't a British actor in a Shakespeare play. No, Luke is mentioning a name that would cause his readers to shiver. He's reminding us what every historian uh, on the planet knew at the time, that the great Caesar Augustus was incomparable. So let's just do a quick run through history on Augustus. Uh, Julius Caesar, if you remember, Uh, was assassinated by his political rivals, including his protege, Brutus. Uh, They conspired against him, and and as they sought to seize control in the subsequent years, Caesar's nearest heir, his adopted son, Octavian, uh, and others go on a vengeance tour. Octavian proceeds uh, to kill those who assassinated Julius Caesar and he, as his as his nearest uh, relative, his adopted son, he inherits Caesar's name and is now Caesar Augustus. Augustus was the first true emperor of Rome, bringing newfound stability and growth to the Roman Empire that would last for centuries. But he was more than a political or a military leader. Uh, Rome, Rome in, their, in their politics, in their military might, it was, it was also a religion. They were religious in their devotion to their leaders. Uh, in the year 9 BC, which is just two decades into uh, Augustus's reign, and only a few years before Luke 2, right here, when we're reading about Jesus, uh, we, have, we have record of an ancient Roman inscription made about Caesar Augustus. Uh, And his reign that marked the occasion of his birthday. I may have shared this with you before. uh, This is who Caesar was to Rome. The most divine Caesar, the inscription read, we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder, he restored it once more. The providence which regulates our existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us Emperor Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as savior has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. The birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news concerning him a savior had been born to them, Caesar Augustus. The gospel news for their world, for the whole world, they believed. The good news about who? About Caesar Augustus. In history, this period begins what's known as the Pax Romana, which is the the Peace of Rome or the Roman Peace. And this peace was initiated by the rule of none other than the king of peace himself, Caesar Augustus. So, so why, why these names? Why is Luke tell us, tell us, telling us about these uh, people? Because in Rome, there was one glory, one savior, one peace throughout the empire. Oh, but the blazing sun that is the glory of God is about to show up. This little low wattage flashlight out in the poor town of Bethlehem It's not gonna look like much. It may be veiled in flesh, but hail the incarnate deity. This is the real deity. This is true peace. The jig was up and Augustus didn't even know it yet, but the powers of hell knew. It was over. God himself, the true powerful one was on the scene. But still, amidst a peace like Rome's, uh, who would long for the true gospel of peace? Whose hope would not be in the climax of perfection of Caesar? Maybe it might be a people who lived as exiles in their own land. Those who longed for a better home, a lasting city, a better country. Could it be that God's the suffering that God had allowed His people to experience? is so that they might see the peace of God, the real peace. To those very people, the ones who walked in darkness, Isaiah 9 says, they'll see a great light. Unto them, unto us, he says, a child will be born, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. And there may have been those uh, those who uh, were part of the nation of Israel who attempted to assimilate and to buy into the Roman peace, just as there are many Christians today who look for political peace, who look to assimilate via finding salvation through nations, peace on earth through political party. But what a lame substitute! As the Incredible Hulk says, what a puny God. That was the Hulk, right? This is not the Hulk. Kent Hughes, this is a great quote from Kent Hughes. Uh, He said this He said, "Uh, The baby Mary uh, that Mary carried was not a Caesar, a man who would become a God, uh, but a far greater wonder, the true God who would become a man. This is our God. This is our King. This is our peace. Number two, we see the invisible decree of God. In verse four, we read that Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, uh, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, uh, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. And so here here we are, this restorer of, of hope, the all-powerful Augustus, he's doing what all-powerful people do. <clears throat> he is measuring and counting his glory and telling people where to go. He's forcing people to be counted. Caesar thought he was making decisions. But what did all of Caesar Augustus's self-glory and taxation and empire building really bring about? It brought Mary and Joseph and the in utero light of the world to the exact place the Lord had superintended, veiled in utero. That doesn't really have a ring the way that veiled in flesh does, uh, but he's coming, he's veiled. This is very much one of those moments that I like to imagine God uh, looking at yet another earthly ruler and simply saying, who's the captain now? Because he's at work, he's the one in charge. God in heaven, even through sinful, glory-seeking human rulers, accomplishing his own divine ends. Where is the Messiah to be born? According to the prophet Micah in Micah chapter five, in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. This is the city of David, Bethlehem. We've read about, uh, in, in or we've talked in, in previous weeks about Joseph as being of the line of David and how significant that is for who Jesus will be and the throne that he will take on. These are two kingdoms at war here. Caesar counting his glory, but God using Caesar. Using Augustus to bring the Messiah to the city that Micah had prophesied regarding his birth. The kingdom of the world with its decrees and a Caesar and his Roman military might and then the kingdom of God, seemingly humble and insignificant, but with the decree of God, all the might of heaven, just off camera. You can't see it, but it is at work. And I, and I, I hope, I, I believe that should help us to relax a little bit. To relax when, when life is hard to to actually believe that the decree of God is at work, that there's a meta story being told, a narrative that exists over and above our our earthly kingdoms and our earthly dwelling. And it doesn't just exist above them. The son of God, the storyteller himself enters in. When you you watch the news, uh, well, first, maybe maybe scale back on the news. That's probably just tip one. Uh, But when you see unrighteous laws, when you see corrupt rulers, injustice and suffering, does it cause you to lose hope? Does it cause you to doubt God's work in the world? Or does it make you say, come Lord Jesus? How long, O oh Lord? Because the decree of God is at work. You can be confident that God's story will not be thwarted the Lord of lords, the Caesar of Caesars, his decrees are steadfast. And though we may suffer for a while, though we may not see the bend in the story's arc, the one who writes the story, he says that not a hair of your head will perish. He is at work and his work is your joy, your salvation, your peace, your good, And for us, a kingdom that will never end. The invisible decree of God is at work. Number three, we see the inglorious entrance of God. Look at verse six. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And we've, we've, we've heard this so much, right? So many times. Um, seen so many nativity scenes, seen so many reenactments, uh, told the story, read the story. Um, and so I, I wanna just take a minute. I'm gonna, I wanna share the story from a different perspective. Um, I wanna share a great poem from a guy named John Shea. Uh, and this is the perspective of a little girl named Sharon and her understanding of the Christmas story. Uh, and so I want you to listen to the story from her perspective. She was five, sure of the facts, and recited them with slow solemnity, convinced every word was revelation. She said, they were so poor, they had only peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to eat, and they went a long way from home without getting lost. The lady rode on a donkey, the man walked, and the baby was inside the lady. They had to stay in a stable with an ox and an ass, he, he, But the three rich men found them because a star lighted the roof. Shepherds came and you could pet the sheep, but not feed them. (laughs) Then the baby was born. And do you know who he was? Her quarter eyes inflated to silver dollars. The baby was God. And she jumped in the air, whirled around, dove into the sofa and buried her head under the cushion, which is the only proper response to the good news of the Incarnation. <laughs> Joy to the world. The Lord has come. That's what's happening. The Lord has come. We should be whirling around and diving into the seats this morning, burying our heads in them. You don't have to, but we should. This, this is one of the most significant brain blending moments in, in history and we can just read it and go, yeah, yeah, that happened. Yeah, these two moments. This, as you read these verses, it's a little underwhelming, isn't it? And I I think that's one of the things that Luke wants us to notice. Yeah, I know that in the next scene uh, we're going to see uh, the sky get lit up, and the shepherds are going to see angels singing. Um, But why? Why are the? Why? What's? What's? What's missing here? Like, why aren't the symbols crashing? Why aren't the trumpets blasting? Why isn't at least the town of Bethlehem buzzing? Uh, the moment that pivots the entire trajectory of the scriptures is happening now, and there's nothing. Now, first, there's, like, there's a newborn present, so like, you shouldn't really have symbols crashing. Whatever the little drummer boy says, that's not in anybody's birth plan. Uh, drumming should not be part of the equation. You don't go to a hospital and see uh, the, the percussion section. Uh, that's, that's not part of it. So no drums for baby. But second, we're supposed to read this and be perplexed. We're supposed to read this and maybe even be horrified that the son of God didn't get a better entrance than this. Those of us who know how, who we, we know how the story ends, we're supposed to cringe a little. What an unworthy entry for the worthiest one of all. Where, where's the red carpet? Like, Where's Santa gets led in by the whole Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade. Prince Ali comes in with 75 golden camels and a bunch of Persian monkeys. I don't know how many, but a lot. 50 something, I think. I mean, there's, there's a parade leading great rulers in. And here Jesus's mom wraps him up by herself. She and Joseph all alone. No midwife even, no family present, this is not how it should be. But is it, is it not a picture of what's to come? The world will not esteem Jesus. He will be despised, not praised. He'll be rejected by men, not received and welcomed with joy. And in what should be the grandest, most royal entrance of them all, he gets no proper bed, no proper guest room, you wanna know what the opposite of glory looks like? It's, it's giving birth on a dirt floor where sheep stay. It's being born and sleeping in a trough where the animal feed just was. But this would be the start of the most, the, the non-glorious, humble life of the incarnate Jesus. His birth in a borrowed animal room of some sort, laid in a borrowed wooden feeding trough, and his life despised. Later he'll say he has no place to lay his head. And then in death, abandoned by his friends, laid again upon wood, this time affixed with nails to a cross, and finally wrapped up in cloths again, and laid in a borrowed grave. Behold, your king your God, your friend. This is a life you wouldn't wish on anyone. Lowly in birth, rejected in life, and cursed in death. Why? All so that you might escape the curse. All so that you might one day forever not be alone like he was, but be home forever with him. So that you might might follow one day the way that he led the way by throwing off those grave clothes and skipping out early on that rental of a tomb. And we can read this and be horrified at the lack of welcome. But don't forget that Isaiah says that we're actually part of the problem. Isaiah 53 says, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we, we, esteemed him, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. We saw the lowliness of Jesus, his humble entrance, his sacrificial death. And and in our wicked hearts, apart from his grace, we saw him as stricken, crushed by the father, afflicted. Why? Because as much as we say we value what God values, we still esteem power. Power. We see this in business, we see it in politics, we see it sometimes even in church leadership. We may say we value servant leaders, those who will lower themselves, but sometimes we're still enamored with the powerful. Those who can manipulate or bully others with his or her might. And this is exactly why we need a savior who would eschew these finer things, who would set aside power, who would reject grand entrances, so that in his humility, our pride might be cut down. This is the hero we needed, not the one in our flesh that I think we would have imagined or dreamed up. God the Father took the most amazing painting on the planet and he didn't hang it in the Louvre No, he took it down to the corner booth at Laredo Taco inside Stripes Gas Station. You know the one I'm talking about. And he hung it there and he said, behold. I like like Laredo Taco, so no, I'm all about it. Uh, this, This salvation, this savior, it's not for the big spenders. It's not for the high rollers. Jesus is for the lowest of the low. And to show it, he came to parents who were all alone with no family to welcome them in, how how much lower could he go? Oh, I don't know, how about emptying himself? Emptying himself all the way to obedience that led to death on a cross. If you're needing and searching for validation this morning that Jesus cares about you, that he loves you, that he can identify with your pain, look no further than his birth. Look no further than his rejection in life and his lowly entrance, his lowly living, and then his, look no further than his death. He set aside glory and he did it for you. And that leads us to our final point, number four. Prepare him room. So this passage ends on an interesting line. Uh, and we've probably all seen this used somewhere. Uh, if you've sent or received a Christmas card, uh, you've probably, or you've probably heard it in a sermon or uh, a song, po- probably something like this. There was no room in the end. Will you make room in your heart for Jesus? Uh, and, and there was definitely a time, I think, in my, in my teenage life or in my 20s probably, uh, that in my arrogance, I would have just said, man, that's so lame. That is so cheesy. Uh, have you made room in your heart for Jesus? Yuck. Like, don't, no, that's so lame. Uh, it feels like something right out of like the Hallmark Christmas movie, like playlist, right? I mean, it probably like, is there room in the inn, uh room in your heart uh, for love or whatever? I don't know. Uh, it's probably, that, that probably is one. Uh, you, some of you probably watched it. Uh, my wife probably loves it. Um, she'll tell me about it later, uh, but but the longer I've been alive, the more that I've seen my own heart, and for, the reality is, I, I don't, I don't have room, I don't have room for Jesus. He is so easily an afterthought, so easily an appendage to my plans, and that's why the scriptures are saying it's it's me, it's you. We're the ones who rejected him. We're the ones who despised him, the ones who esteemed him not. Recently, by God's providence, I was listening to a podcast that uh, was just talking briefly about uh, the life of the great hymn writer, uh, maybe the greatest hymn writer of all time, Isaac Watts. Um, who, was, who was born in a Puritan home in England and, and man, just uh, such a cool life and ministry. Uh, but he gave us some of the, just some of the greatest hymns. Uh, you know some of the classic hymns. When I survey the wondrous cross, alas and did my savior bleed, I sing the mighty power of God. Uh, but, but listen to this line that we all know so well uh, that he wrote, and I, I think he wrote it for us, those who think too little of Jesus. Uh, we already sang it this morning. He wrote this, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Now the heaven singing part, that's gonna be next week. But the Lord has come. If the Lord doesn't come, if the Lord doesn't humble himself, if Jesus does not suffer the pain of hunger and sickness, of learning to walk and to eat, if he doesn't condescend to take on flesh, I'm dead. You are dead. We are destroyed and lost in our sin. His coming, it is, it's, like, it's like that sandcastle uh, that's built near the water and the water comes in and it wipes out the bottom. It wipes out the foundation. The castle's still standing, but it's it's not standing for long. This moment in redemptive history is that fatal crack in the foundation of death. He is taking death out for you. It's the fatal flaw in sin's curse. It's the poison pill that would one day destroy sin, hell, death, and the grave forever. But first, he must be born in obscurity. First, he must be humiliated. He must suffer. He must be crushed so that we could live. And yet, in our celebrating, do we go to more Christmas parties, watch more Christmas movies, listen to more Christmas songs, attend more events, than we ever have thankful conversations about the incarnate Jesus? Christmas songs are really welcome this time of year, but conversations about the incarnation, not so much. There is indeed no room in the end. Will, Will he be the theme of our gathering, of our talking, of our coming together as families? Is the incarnate Jesus sitting at the center? Schedules are more packed than ever, and that's not just a Christmas thing. There is indeed no room. No room in our lives. No room in the end. Will the humility of the incarn- incarnate Jesus lead us to reorient our lives? Reorient our calendars. This is what's been done for you. The Lord came, He's with you. Charles Spurgeon said, Emmanuel, God with us in our nature, in our sorrow, in our life work, in our punishment, in our grave, and now with us, or rather we with him in resurrection, ascension, triumph, and second advent splendor. And if he is indeed with us in our sorrow, if he's indeed with us to the end of the age, how much more in our family conversations, how much more so in our morning prayers, in our schedules, in our budgets, in our resting, in our working, in our life together with the saints of God. What a waste it would be this Advent if we sang, veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see hail the incarnate deity. If we marveled at the God-man who who came to dwell with us and yet in the practice of our life, we actually veiled him again. We actually obscured his, his being shown to the world shown to our families and our friends. If we actually veiled the beauty of the incarnation in our own eyes by fixating on temporal festivities and and gift giving and, and family and business and all the other things that happen. Oh, the king of the universe. He's the one. He came. He humbled himself. He dwelled with us. So may we prepare him room. May we May we make room and reorient our life so that every heart, so that our hearts might rejoice in Jesus. I wanna close uh, with one of the least sung verses of Watt's famous hymn, Joy to the World. Uh, As as he writes of the joy of Christ's arrival uh, in in a verse that we rarely sing later on, uh, he looks then to the blessing of the new kingdom. And he says this, He says, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. Oh, that the blessing of the God man would be felt and reach into every nook and cranny of of our lives. Would there be room for him there? And would we worship him? Will we receive this great king of glory? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we, we need you. We invite you in. We want you in our lives. We want the joy of the gospel, the reality of our sins forgiven, all the many blessings that are ours in you and just you, you in your glory and your perfection. We, we, we want you in our lives. We need you. But Father, would you, would, you, would you clear out of sight, would you help us put to death those things that are distracting us from the beauty of, of who you are? Father, would you you point us to the Son? And in your spirit, would our uh, celebrating this season, would it be marked by a, a renewed love for the incarnate King of the world? For the risen Christ. So we praise you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.